Hello and welcome to episode 1965 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Also, I almost goofed the intro, but guess what? I steered out of the skid. Yep. Steered into the skid? Which way are you supposed to steer with skids? You're asking me, the yeah, non-driver guess, here? Yeah. Which, uh, into yeah. the skid, though, right? Into I know that. I never... steered into it, and then I didn't crash. There you go. There yeah, you go. I've yeah. never steered into or out of one, but I know that you're supposed to steer into it, and right. yes, you saved it. Anyway, I'm here, yes, and it begins <laughs> again. Yeah. We're doing it. We're doing it's, it. It's the team season preview series. Oh, I never know whether boy. to call it the team preview series or the season preview series. It's both. So we are doing this. I guess it's the 10th anniversary of the first time there was an Effectively Wild season preview series. We started these in 2013. It's gone through all sorts of incarnations and formats since then. But we seem to have hit on one that people like a few years ago. And after an off year last year, because of the lockout where we just did division previews instead of team by team we are going back to the full 30 team team by team two teams per pod format that will take us up to the week of opening day so i'm excited to embark on this journey i can't believe it is time again mm-hmm. i feel confused afraid <laughs> uh perhaps a little uh trepidatious yep. but also ben very excited mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a bit of a hassle from a scheduling perspective, but I think people appreciate it as a a rite of passage, as a sign that opening day is is coming closer, that the season is almost upon us. And it's a good way to get prepped for the season. And new listeners often find the podcast through the season preview series. And then we we hook them with the rest of our nonsense. And so (laughs) they become captive listeners. So this is how we we trap them. So if you're new to Effectively Wild, welcome. One of us, one of us. So today, so nefarious. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's, it's not brainwashing or anything. We we hope that you will just enjoy the podcast <laughs> and want to continue to no subliminal messaging going on here whatsoever. <laughs> My, it's not brainwashing or anything. T-shirt has people asking questions. <laughs> exactly. So we're starting today with the San Francisco Giants Mm. and the Minnesota Twins, and there is a method to our madness. We are doing our our Silicon Valley-style middle-out method. So we used to start with the extremes, where we would start with the best projected teams and the worst projected teams, and then work our way inward. And I think that felt like a a deflating, like a little letdown for people, because we sort of started with the the teams at the extremes, and then we worked into the, the more mediocre projections which is not to say that all of the teams are not special and uh, fun, but I think we hit on this way of doing it the other way where we start with the teams that are sort of in the center of the projected win total ranges and then we work our way out. So we will eventually end with the teams with the top projection and the bottom projection. So the Giants and the Twins just happen to be the two teams in the middle this year. They both have 510 projected winning percentages according to the Fangraphs depth charts as of today, which puts them at about 82 to 83 wins. And really, it it works out perfectly because uh, we have two of the teams that agreed to terms with Carlos Correa this Mm. winter. (laughs) Maybe we should have just lumped them Mets in here too and get them all out of the way, but we can talk about getting Crea and not getting Crea on these previews 
And there are some other things uh, kind of in common here. I mean, similar win totals in 2022, which I guess makes sense given the 2023 projections. Similar farm rankings, I think, according to Keith Law's recently released rankings and Kylie McDaniels. Keith had the Giants at 18 and the Twins at 19. Kylie had the Giants at 20 and the Twins at 17. They're 12th and 17th in projected payroll. So they really are just sort of in the middle, at least by those metrics. So I think it, it makes sense to pair them together today. Yeah, I think I think that you're right, Ben. And it turns out that it's good, I think, that since we have already conducted our interviews. <laughs> yeah, it's too late now. But we have with us today two guests who started previewing teams with us, these teams, in fact, way back in 2014. We will have some first-timers over the course of the series and some fresh voices, but we just got some oldsters with us today. Some old friends and favorites, Grant oh, Brisby. You really, speaking of steering into the skid and then avoiding a crash, oldsters, yes. I was like, oh, we don't need to talk about them that way. But then you you made it clear it's because they're, they're longstanding friends of the show. And yeah. then, it, then it was better, Ben, you know. Yeah, they are still youthful and, and vital in every way, but they've been with us for a while and they've been uh, blogging about their respective clubs here for 20 plus years. So Grant Brisby will be talking to us about the Giants and Aaron Gleeman will be talking to us about the Twins, both of them, of course, from The Athletic. So this will be fun. I'm excited to get going. And some episodes we will start with pre-preview banter, but I think today we can probably just get down to business and we will do two preview pods per week the first and third episodes of each week if we stay on schedule will be preview pods and then the middle one we can do something else so we will probably do some emails and stat blasting and such later in the week but i think the only change that we maybe have to make people aware of this year is that we are not going to end with our traditional question which is how many wins do you think this team will have in the coming season? That is typically how we have ended these preview pods. And we've always sort of done that apologetically and and almost cheapestly, I think. (laughs) I always say, why am I doing this? And then we go ahead and do it anyway, just because of tradition, I suppose. And it's hypocritical of me to inflict predictions on others because I always grumble when I have to make predictions. I hate having to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not good at it. And I don't think really anyone is good at it, at least consistently. And so it's sort of silly. I don't think there's a ton of utility to it because we have projections, right? I mean, we're ordering the whole series based on projections and we know the projections are pretty good guides or at least better than us just coming up with numbers off the top of our heads. And we have had listeners who have tracked and analyzed the win total projections every year in our previous series, Chris Hanel and Darius Austin. And we know that much as we love them, our preview guests are always collectively on the high side. You know, just as a group, they project more wins than are available in a single season. So uh, I think there are reasons for that. I mean, these are people who are covering these teams and whether they are irrationally exuberant or they don't want to anger their audiences or whatever it is, I I think it makes some sense. Uh, We tend to look on the bright side about teams, especially when the season is just starting and we're all optimistic. So if you really want to get the most accurate projections, I don't think you were ever really getting that from our preview guests. 
this. And and that's not really what we want to accomplish with these previews, I don't think. I mean, these are in-depth discussions about the state of the organizations. I guess it might be semi-useful to get a projected win total from a guest just to kind of calibrate how good the guest thinks the team will be, which Mm. might influence how you interpret their other answers. But I think it's typically pretty clear from the conversation as a whole how the guest expects the season to go. So I don't think there's a lot of extra insight gleaned there. Plus, we're asking people to predict win totals at different times. I mean, the nice thing about this year is that rosters are more set than they have been in the past few years of previewing. So there won't be as many unknowns early in the series. But we're starting today before pitchers and catchers have reported and before we know which players are looking set and we're ending the week of opening day when injuries and last minute moves and spring training games will have happened and we will know more or less what rosters will look like. So it's not exactly fair to our first preview guests to project knowing a lot less than our last preview guests. And as I was saying, I I think the purpose of the preview series is not just to establish how many games a team will win, which is to some degree unknowable. Obviously, whether the team is good or not is relevant, but how it will win or won't win and what's going on under the surface and the why and and what we're not paying attention to and what we might not know from the win total alone, that's what we're really trying to get insight on, I think, from the people who cover these organizations. So I don't think it ever added a whole lot. Yeah, I agree with all of those things when you said, hey, do we have to, should we keep doing this? You sent it and I didn't see it right away. And then I thought, yeah, Ben's right. You know, he's right about that. We don't need to do it. Ben, we don't have to banter, but yeah. I want to read a tweet to you. Oh, sure. It's relevant to the, okay. to the Minnesota Twins. Oh, all right. And Carlos Correa. Oh, no. <laughs> Everything's fine. Okay. I want you to know everything is fine. Retroactively fail another physical. No, although okay. <laughs> the first four words of this tweet might make you think that were true. And Uh-oh. then some of the other words might make you laugh. Are you ready? So this sure. is from Dan Hayes, one of Aaron's colleagues at The Athletic. Mm-hmm. Carlos Correa is withdrawing ah! oh, no. <laughs> from the World Baseball Classic. Ah, okay. Which is a bummer, but, you know, less traumatic than (laughs) us having to write another free agency reaction piece. After making a joint decision, (laughs) the Minnesota Twins, uh, I guess uh, Carlos and his wife are expecting another baby, and she's due the same week that Puerto Rico opens WBC play. Twins don't want Korea juggling WBC and family. Story Mm -hmm. to follow. Making a joint decision. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, Yeah. we're going to have to do some WBC previewing and reviewing during this preview series as well. So that'll be another storyline, which will impact a team's preparation for the season, right? And who's in spring training camp and who's not. So that'll be something that I'm sure that we will discuss. All right. Well, we will get to the previews. The other thing about not predicting wing totals. People generally don't enjoy answering that question. Oh, they hate answering that question. (laughs) They hate it. And Will Leach, if you're listening, and and maybe we will be talking to you soon, I know Will always enjoys uh, listening to them squirm, and he doesn't understand why they squirm, and and why aren't they ready to rapid fire deliver a a prediction. I mean, I think it doesn't make for the best listening to hear people hem and haw and finally reluctantly name a number. Plus, I feel bad when sometimes I see people using the 
these early kind of off-the-cuff estimates from February and holding them over our guests' heads throughout the season, right? Because they have to cover these teams all season, and maybe if they initially aimed high or low, then people will use those win totals to taunt them, and that's not very nice. And but plus, like, the incentives here. I mean, if you're someone who covers this team and, and has to be kind of accountable to the fan base, I mean, you don't want to just slag off the team totally and say they're right. going to be completely terrible, which is maybe why we end up with the projections being on the high side every year. But you also don't want to be irrationally optimistic and seem Pollyannish about it. Anyway, there are all kinds of considerations why I think after many years it maybe makes sense to, to ditch the predicted win total. So RIP to those predictions. Yeah, people wanted to hear someone on this podcast squirm uncomfortably. We do another draft episode. Gosh. <laughs> exactly. And we will someday, but not today. We are previewing the Giants and the Twins. So let's get straight to the first of those two teams, the San Francisco Giants. Well, who better to help us get this series started than our old pal, Grant Brisby, who covers the Giants for The Athletic. He writes about the Giants for The Athletic. He podcasts about all of baseball for The Athletic Baseball Show on the Roundtable. And he is here not only to talk to us about the Giants, but also, all importantly, to close the gap in the all-time most frequent Effectively Wild guests leaderboards <laughs> between himself in second place and Eric Longenhagen in first place. So suck it, Longenhagen. Grant is uh, creeping ever closer. Welcome, Grant. I will crush you, Eric Longenhagen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Eric doesn't cover a single team specifically, so he's sort of at a disadvantage here. He doesn't get to come on the preview pots anyway. I know that's not your top priority. No, I mean, there is, uh, there has to be a significant sample of your listeners who just cannot stand me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's got to be a, a few, and I'm just always in their ears. So um, sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, we hear from the Patreon people from time to time, you know, I'm I'm canceling my membership, just too much grant. Yeah. Just <laughs> just couldn't stomach that guy Grant anymore. Yep. Anyway, hope there's not a huge exodus of subscribers this time around. But we're here to talk about the San Francisco Giants, as is our tradition. And you recently wrote a column that was headlined Giants fans are angry at everything. And we're about to talk to Aaron Gleeman about the Twins. And I think Twins fans were angry about a lot of things until they landed Carlos Correa or brought back Carlos Correa. And then they were less angry. So what a difference Carlos Correa can make. And I think Carlos Correa, probably uh, the way that that whole saga played out, maybe made Giants fans more angry at everything that they already were. So we certainly uh, talked about the Carlos Correa, will he, won't he, where will he saga a lot this offseason. But but not so much from a, a Giants media member or fans perspective. So take us through, if you would, the whole arson judge, Carlos Correa. <laughs> Are we going to get one of the best free agents? No, it turns out that we're not because uh, – I think the perception of that may have changed slightly given what happened with the Mets ultimately, but there's still seemingly a lot of anger simmering. Yeah, I think you have to take it back to there was a week in a, uh, an offseason where the Giants had a legitimate chance to get Giancarlo Stanton and Shohei Otani. There's about <laughs> a week overlap where they were the favorites for Stanton and they're one of the six finalists for Otani. And you kind of knew it wasn't going to happen, and you kind of thought maybe both would happen. 
And then the Giants finished, uh, I don't know if they finished second for Otani, but they finished uh, just in that last round. And then they had a trade for Stanton, and then he nixed it with his no-trade clause. Okay, so you're there. It's not it's not thrilling. But then they're second for Bryce Harper. They're second for Aaron Judge. And there's just this feeling that the Giants are always going to be second. They're not going to do whatever it takes to Like put- you, behind Eric Langenhagen. Um- oh, that's a low, <laughs> dirty boy. Wow. But yes, that's exactly right. And so you have this, this feeling like because free agency is inherently irrational and the Giants were always going to be just a little too rational for that sort of uh, – to, to just go, ah, screw it. I'm, we're going to pay too much money too many years. And so when they got Correa, that was them being rationally irrational. That was the front office saying, you know what? We just have to have a little measure of screw it. We're going to go to 13 years, which is bonkers. And then there was just that idea that – they finally did something silly in a good way, and then it felt like there was cold feet. Like, what are you talking about? An injury from 2014? Oh, you can't be serious. Oh, no, this is the ownership. This is – and so that's where the anger starts. And then when you get more information, well, he kind of does have termites in his ankles. <laughs> it doesn't make it automatically feel better. It's, it's like a, a begrudging like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. But the anger is still there under the surface. <laughs> Termites in his ankles. What would be? Uh, I was about to say what would be the most ridiculous thing that could be in his ankle, but knowing you and us, if we ask that question, we're gonna go on forever and ever. So yes. I guess this is not a question that is targeted toward the 2023 fortunes of the San Francisco Giants, but I'm curious what your sense is of sort of what the the lingering effects of the signing falling through, which is like the least judgy way I can think of to describe what happened. Literally the least judgy. <laughs> <laughs> Might be for this front office because as you noted, like they have they have taken their swings before and we have heard, you know, when we talk to baseball people, the Giants are gonna spend, the Giants are gonna spend. They tried. They really did try. They did not get to do that, at least not to the extent they did. We'll talk about some of their other signings in a second here. But what do you think this is going to mean for them long term? Are they just going to say, well, put that money in a savings account and we're going to throw it at Otani this coming off season? What is what is the future hold in terms of their continued appetite to spend? They should have a really strong chance of finishing second for Otani. I think (laughs) that is in the cards. But really, this is a roster that is not – they don't have a ton of extension candidates. Logan Webb is the obvious one. Um, I guess if you look a few years in the future, you can can talk about Camilo Duvall, but he's a reliever. They just don't have those players who are – Oh gosh, we gotta lock them up. We gotta lock yeah. them up through their twenties. It's it's a mostly it's an older roster. It's a roster where uh, their better prospects are not on there, and so they're gonna have money to spend. And I've always said it's going to be on a player who is different, special. It's going to be for a player that you just. You have to buy because you're probably not going to develop them. They're just, they're young. They're going to be that uh, Manny Machado in, in his 20s, Bryce Harper in his mid-20s. It's going to be someone like that. So 
Juan Soto maybe, but you're you're talking about players that come up very infrequently, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the Giants jumped on Carlos Correa so quickly after Aaron Judge fell through, that he was one of those players. It's a player you can count on for eight years to be a top-level player who does most of the baseball things right. And that's what they're going to look for with a, a long-term contract. But how many of those players are there? There just right. aren't that many. Yeah. Did the Giants get credit for the effort? I mean, I know that people make fun of teams for saying we tried when the reports come out after they didn't sign a free agent. And then you read, oh, we really tried and we made a competitive offer. The Giants, they really did with Judge and with Correa, unless you're a a total conspiracy theorist and you think that the Giants were just making those offers for show and they knew that Judge wouldn't want to accept that deal and that he would go back to the Yankees and they wanted to pull out of the Correa deal all along. They did at least go beyond And what everyone says, right, which is that they haven't given a a guaranteed deal of more than three years to anyone during Farhan Zaidi's tenure. And to extend Logan Webb, they obviously would need to do that. But have they shown at least that, hey, we will go beyond three years or until they actually sign someone for longer than that? You just really won't give them full marks for that. I think they get a little credit. I will give them it's it's not the same situation as Bryce Harper where if the Giants maybe offered uh, a 14th year or something to Bryce Harper that they could have got him. The, I think Aaron Judge knew he was going back to the Yankees in October in November. I I don't think he really entertained the idea of going to San Francisco or leaving the Yankees, I should say, um, more than a few seconds. So the Giants tried, okay, so they finished second, but they might as well have finished uh, 13th. They were just there to get the Yankees up to that level. They get a little credit for that, but I'm not sure if that was ever going to happen. The Correa contract, he was in San Francisco. There is a jersey printed somewhere that he was going to hold (laughs) up. They get credit for that. Come on. They get credit for that. And then when they were going to pay him for 13 years, I don't think you can fake that. And the Mets really saved their bacon because that was – now you can – it's not just the Giants being weirdos or the Giants are a little too finicky. You have another team that looked at that and went, ooh. Yeah, no, no, no. And that that helps them. And I do think they get credit for that. So let's talk about some of the guys they did sign. Because it's not that they didn't bring in a free agent outfielder, as you know, Grant. (laughs) Indeed, they brought in two free agent outfielders. And they tendered uh, Jack Peterson a qualifying offer that he accepted, if we still count him as an outfielder, even though he sometimes is, you know, a little shaky out there. But talk to me about the Giants outfield. What are your expectations of Hanniger and Conforto? Hanniger and Conforto, they're good deals in a vacuum. I, I like betting on their power, trying to rediscover those 30 home runs from a couple years ago. I Conforto was one of the better hitters in the National League for years. Uh, it's a smart bet to go after uh, someone who was as good as recently as 2019 and, and say, okay, let's try this again. And I also think they're a little bit better defensively than they're given credit for. They're not great, but they if you're pushing them to the corners and you're, that is putting Yastrzemski and Slater in center field, it's not an abominable defensive outfield. In in the past where you would have Jock Peterson or Darren Ruff, it got closer to abominable. So I think this is going to be a pleasant surprise there. They're good moves in a vacuum. They're just not Aaron Judge. They're just not Carlos Correa. And 
the biggest problem might not be that they can't sign a, a big name free agent, but that they are not populating the rest of the roster with prospects, that they they don't have these homegrown all-stars that allow you to get a supplemental piece like Conforto and Hander and get excited about them. Without that, you're relying totally on the judges and the Correa's. And if you're not getting them, everyone's like, ooh, Hanniger, ooh, Conforto. They're good players. They're solid players, I think. It's a solid move. It's just not the moves everyone's hoping for. Will this be the year that the Giants have a 30-plus home run hitter for the first time since Barry Bunt? <laughs> Boy, I don't you, – you would have to think so. Just by virtue of – I mean, they – they. Brandon Belt was on his way, and then he, you know, walked under a upside down horseshoe or whatever, like he's <laughs> wont to do. And he he was going to be that thirty home run hitter, but I gotta think that one of Hanniger Conforto is gonna get thirty, and it's probably gonna be Hanniger because he's right handed. But yeah, this has got to be the year. That's a, that's a that's a silly kind of uh, <laughs> uh, record. That they've got going on. Yeah. The other silly one that we've tracked is uh, the curse of the revolving door left fielders yes. post funds, right? Having a different opening day left fielder every year since then, which is, uh, we'll have to update it. I forget whether it's an all time record now or very close or about to be. We've done a stat blast about this and you've probably covered it too. Jock Peterson was the opening day left fielder last year. Mm. So will that streak be broken or he'll, will he probably not be there this year? He will probably not be there. If he's in left field, something's gone wrong. I mean, yeah. if he's in left field, that means that uh, one of Conforto and Hanniger is hurt. And right. given their recent history, that's not ideal. So yeah, I, I think it's going to keep going on. I thought Austin Slater had a chance uh, before they signed Jock Peterson last year. And you know what? If a left-handed pitcher is on the mound last year, it's possible that it gets broken because Austin Slater would have been in there for Jock Peterson against a left-handed pitcher. So uh, I put the blame on whomever... Whatever team the Giants were playing on opening day last year, which I absolutely remember, but I'm just going to keep that information to myself. (laughs) I definitely remember. I I covered it. I (laughs) noticed that one of the potential candidates to hit 30 home runs is not Joey Bart. Hmm. Grant, at least not the one that you mentioned. Talk to us about Joey Bart. What do we make of Joey Bart at this point? Because he was a top prospect. He debuted. He disappointed. It didn't matter for a minute because Buster Posey was not yet retired and had an incredible season. Then Buster Posey famously did retire, and Joey Bart's been the guy, and he's humming along at like a 90 WRC+. plus. So what does the future hold for Joey Bart, and what is what is the organization's sort of view of him at this point? When he was coming up as a prospect, you would have these, well, he's going to be an all-star level catcher. He's going to, these are his strengths. If you have to compare him to another catcher, well, uh, Mike Zanino's right there. Mike Zanino was drafted third overall. Joey Bart was drafted second. And at the time, that was not very exciting if you wanted to get excited uh, for Joey Bart. You're kind of like, well, Mike Zanino, he had a couple good years, but, you know, the contact's not always there. Oh, gosh, that can't really be his, his ceiling, can it? And I think it is. I think that comp existed for a reason. I think it's always been too obvious to really, it's almost been like too good to be true, too obvious. Like that is such a perfect comparison and comparisons don't usually work out like that. But I think that's his ceiling. I think Bart's going to hit 200 with a 280 on base percentage and maybe 20 home runs and play pretty darn good defense. 
and that's going to be his ceiling, and that's fine. That's good. Zunino's had a you know pretty decent career with some good seasons. He's made an all-star team. That might happen for Joey Bart, but I, I think the average Mike Zunino season, uh, 200 average with a slugging percentage just over 400, I think that's what you're going to get from Bart, and that's fine. It's just expectations were a little bit different at one point. You don't have to convince me that Mike Zanino is good. That's fair. You mentioned Brandon Belt a minute ago. He's no longer here. We're down to one big league Brandon at this point. And <laughs> Jesse Thorne, friend of the show, in our Facebook group recently, he made the point that it was handy to have Brandon Belt around because it allowed you to filter out a certain sort of fan <laughs> if you were talking to them. And, you know, they maybe had uh, less enlightened opinions of the value of Brandon Belt and that kind of calibrated your discussion, you know, kind of told you what sort of fan that was, right, really or wrongly. So can you sort of sum up the the Brandon Belt experience now that it's over in San Francisco, just his legacy, what it was like to cover him and maybe appreciate him more than some segments of the fan base did? Yeah, that was a weird time. It's just Brandon Belt making people mad will never <laughs> not be funny to me. He should not be so divisive. He's he's a gregarious. He's a funny guy. He's he produced well. He has like a, a place in history with the team. He had an 18th inning home run. He he has two World Series rings. He should not be controversial, but he was, and it was it had a lot to do with. Uh, Expectations, again, he was supposed to be this top, top prospect, uh, maybe as good as Will Clark, perhaps. And he comes up and he hits nine home runs his first year. He hits seven home runs his second year. Uh, and then he never got over 20 home runs. Year after year, it was 17 home runs, 12, 18. And he would always get hurt. And it was always getting hit by baseballs or knees or just getting hit by hard objects in the head and stuff like that. And he had this body language that to the untrained eye looked like he was slumping his shoulders, that he just didn't want to be there or I don't know. And then he had a fatal flaw where he would take uh, a lot of cold strike threes and you'd go, come on, you got to protect. That's like the classic, you know, you're an old school baseball fan. You got to protect, Brandon. Come on. It doesn't matter if the umpire is wrong. You got to protect. And this is all very amusing to me because Giants fans on mass, they love JT Snow. Just love JT Snow. To this day, JT Snow this, JT Snow that. He was, you know, a good giant. He had all of the same issues that Belt did as far as, you know, he didn't hit a lot of home runs. His on-base percentage wasn't as good as Belt's. But for whatever reason, if it's the body language, it's, I don't know, but Belt became divisive. Weird as heck. Weird as heck. Yeah. And the other Brandon, the one who's still there, Brandon Crawford, he turned 36 last month and he had sort of a strange offseason in that for a week or so there, he thought he was moving to third base, which was <laughs> obviously an adjustment for him, although he seemed to take it in stride or at least publicly. He said, you know, he was uh, looking forward to the new challenge and, and the right things that you sort of say, although having spent his whole accomplished career there at short, probably there was part of him that resented it. But I guess when you bring in Carlos Correa and a player like that, then you kind of understand at this point in your career that it might be time to move aside. But it turns out he's not moving aside. So 
Is he still good at that position? He's only a couple of years removed from his last gold glove. The metrics were sort of divided on him last year. And obviously the bat was maybe the bigger problem in that that was way down from the previous season, which was just a huge year for him. So how much does Brandon Crawford have left? I, he played his best defense toward the end of the season. There was a road trip in September where he was Amazing. It was, it had uh, a throw that he made from deep in the hole that was his hardest ever tracked by StatCast. He was just all over the field, going to his left, going to his right. And I will agree that the eyeballs and the stats, um, they, they told a different picture earlier in the year. They, okay, you know, he's lost a step. He's solid. His hands are still, you know, great, but he doesn't have the same range. He's not wowing you as much as he did. And for whatever reason, toward the end of the season, you saw that again, whether it's a, I don't know what the explanation would be. I'm not a very good baseball analyst, but something changed and he looked like the Brandon Crawford of old. I don't know if that's going to uh, translate to uh, better defensive numbers in his age 36 season. I'm not sure what to make of it, but I will say that for a couple of weeks, he looked like the Brandon Crawford of old. I want to talk a bit about the rotation now, and I think the way that we want to enter this is to talk about some of the additions that the Giants made, and they strike me as perhaps highlighting different strengths of the organization. So let's talk about Shamanaya and Ross Stripling. What are your expectations of Manaya? Because I feel like the Giants occupy this interesting spot where we have seen them be able to help guys in a meaningful way, but they haven't been doing that sort of adjustment stuff as well as long as some other teams that we tend to associate with, you know, having good player dev that's able to fix guys. So how do you view the Manaya signing? Is this like a, a fun test case for them? Do you think that he is going to stick with them the whole year? Talk to me about Sean Manaya, Grant. <laughs> Sean Manaya, I, I don't think he's a candidate to be completely overhauled. I don't see the Giants taking him and doing that Kevin Gossman thing where, hey, you see these other pitches? Forget about them. You are a fastball splitter guy, right? You- Why do they talk like they're from New York when they live in San Francisco? <laughs> it's it's baked into the DNA of the franchise, man. It's just, uh, hey, listen, it junk that stuff. <laughs> I haven't been away long enough by now. <laughs> yeah, I'm developing here, hey. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think he's going to be more of a finished product um, his expected ERA was much better than his actual ERA. He was one of the most, one of the unluckiest starters in baseball last year based on, you know, the exit velocity, the launch angle. He looked like the same pitcher that he'd been. So I don't think that they're going to try and reinvent the wheel. That's just, it, it doesn't seem like an Alex Cobb kind of situation where they're going to really tell him to live up in the zone in a way that maybe he wasn't doing with the Angels or I don't know. I, I think he's just going to be Sean Maniah for better or for worse. And that's a, a pretty solid pitcher. And then a guy who, you know, I think had a, a much better year <laughs> clearly than Maniah did. And indeed uh, sort of an outlier year relative to the rest of his career is Stripling. So do you think the good times will continue for Ross Stripling, Grant? 
I think so. That he is a very, very, very gianty pitcher. Yeah. Um. You know, he's got the because what what he does well is he throws the ball where you tell him to throw the ball. You put the glove down, he's probably going to hit him. He has command. Manaya never really had command, so that's going to be you're going to get what you get, and you don't get upset with Manaya. But with Stripling, it's going to be okay. We have a game plan for you. Here is how the Giants think. You, Ross Stripling, can get this batter out. It's going to be throw here, 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 here. And Stripling will say, okay. And he'll do it for the most part. And that's what the Giants, that's like the platonic ideal of what the Giants want from a pitcher. And they're pretty good at at their game plans. You know, that is one of the things with Renan, with Logan Webb. They have been pretty successful telling pitchers, hey, throw it here. And Stripling is the guy who's going to be able to do that. Another guy who's looking for a bounce back, unless you look at XFIP, in which case he was fine all along, is uh, is Rogers, right? Taylor Rogers. <laughs> which Rogers? Taylor Rogers. That's the one. Is uh, he going to bounce back to being what he was, uh, I guess, prior to last season or what some of the defense independent stats say he was even last season when he was superficially struggling? And more importantly, what potential for twin related hijinks can we expect? <laughs> I mean, they've got to dress up in each other's uniform at least once that's it would be it'd be malpractice not to do that at least once just to mess with uh, Gabe Kapler but I think he's kind of the new Brandon Belt now, right? He is someone who is that canary in the coal mine for someone who's going to come in with some hot takes that you probably don't have to listen to. Rodgers was fine last year. His He was fine uh, as, as far as his ERA, like his ERA was 3.57. That is a tremendous accomplishment considering it was, gosh, in the fives or sixes for a huge chunk of the year. He's, he's going to be fine. I went on a deep dive looking for what had changed for him last year and it wasn't really command it wasn't really control even though he walked a few more batters it was just nothing it was just the defense not catching the ball it was uh, a poor defense behind him but it's also more than that the ball just comes off bats differently against him he just produces weird contact the exit velocity is going to be stellar, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything if these balls are going to be doing things that fielders aren't expecting. It's going to slow their reaction time just a bit. So his fielding independent pitching stats are going to be, oh, he should be much better. I'm not so sure. Like the exit velocity is going to be elite, but I'm not sure how much that helps him relative to a normal pitcher. But he should be fine. He should be fine. And there should be hijinks. And I think the Giants should trade for Trevor Rogers. I really do. <laughs> you just want all, all yeah. the Rogerses. Well, then you have to bring, you know, then you need to reassemble all the Brandons so that you can have a complete set. Then you have to, oh gosh, who were the... The players, there was three that I always got confused. There's a Ranger, a Mariner, Danny Murphy, Donnie Murphy, David Murphy. You got to get all those back. <laughs> Sound like we're doing a bit from Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> One guy in that uh, bullpen who I don't think we need to worry overly much about is Camilo Duvall, who is uh, coming in as their closer. He was good in 2021 in 27 innings, and then he was even better in 2022 in a lot more innings than that. Maybe just talk about the bullpen generally. Apart from the Twins and and Duvall, how do you see these guys stacking up? And are there any weak points that they might stand to shore up? 
It's a funny bullpen. Like Duvall, I will say he worries me just a tiny, tiny bit because he's so slow to the plate. Mm. And that's going to change with the pitch clock. And yeah. you're saying, okay, so maybe one of the one of the effects of a pitch clock is that players aren't going to be able to, to hump up their fastball velocity to where it maybe could be at its peak. And Duvall, someone who really wants to have that triple-digit velocity on his fastball. Really I wants to hump it up. That's a microchroism. <laughs> and after I said it, I said, you know what? People... People aren't going to get that, that <laughs> when you hump up velocity. That's a, that's a Mike Kruko. Yeah, he's humping up his velocity there. <laughs> so I, I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to be. I don't want to be this worry wart. I don't want to be a chicken little. But that is one thing I am sort of keeping an eye on uh, around him, though. I think Taylor Rogers is better than his ERA was last year. I think he's still a, a fine pitcher who can get lefties and righties out alike. Uh, John Brebbia is solid. I think he'll be even better this year at missing bats. Um, Scott Alexander's probably going to be on, uh, you know, they gave him a major league deal and he's probably going to be in that bullpen. And he was a revelation last year. He had a, a turbo sinker and it was nasty and it was exactly what the Giants want to have in there. So you're going to have this core that's pretty solid. And then around them, they should have maybe three long relievers. Maybe there's going to be uh, piggyback starters. Maybe there's going to be a seven-man rotation. I mean, a lot is on the table. And the Giants, when they have Alex Wood, Anthony Desclafani, Jacob Junis, and maybe Sam Long, they're going to have relievers who can give innings, four innings at a pop, uh, three innings at a pop. And I think the goal is to keep the bullpen the relievers, the one inning relievers, uh, their workload down a little bit. I think that's the overall goal because they were pretty gassed by the end of last season. To go back to your column about how Giants fans are angry at everything, your prescription wasn't just sign a top tier free agent, although that would help, but it was really about needing to develop a homegrown core. So what has prevented the Giants from doing that thus far? And how close are they to doing that? What signs of that forthcoming core could we see as soon as this season? So I think two things have prevented it. Uh, the first is that when this front office took over, the Giants had a, a burgeoning farm system, but it was a very young one. You had teenagers at the time with Marco Luciano and, and Luis Matos, and you just can't expect them to to take that Ronald Acuna path or Juan Soto path and be up when they're 20, 21. So um, that was one part of it. The other part of it is that they have whiffed on their first round picks, uh, brutally whiffed on the players who are supposed to be closer to the major whether it is Hunter Bishop or whether it's uh, Will Bednar or uh, Patrick Bailey. They just have not done a lot with those first round picks. So that's a problem. And then they just, there have been some really disappointing players who the expectations were a lot different. Uh, Elliot Ramos is uh, the most extreme example of someone who is supposed to be now entrenched in the lineup, who is going to break that left fielder streak, who is going to be someone that they can count on for the next uh, X number of years. And he he had a miserable year in Sacramento uh, last season. So it's been a combination of factors. I think the hope this year is that uh, Kyle Harrison, will be up and uh, entrench himself in the rotation at some point, or that there will be uh, Casey Schmidt might show up. They're they're keeping third base warm for him, and he's got a two-way potential as far as he's a great uh, defender, um, like a platinum glove level defender at that third base by most accounts, and he's got a little offensive potential too. So that's the hope for this year, and if it doesn't happen, I... 
I just don't see how you go out every year and try and pin your hopes on the Mitch Hanegers and Michael Confortos of the world. At some point, you have to develop someone who uh, will be around for a while. Or sign Arson Judge. Or sign Arson Judge. The Giants are, are, I think at this point, famous for the depth of their coaching staff. Just the sheer number of folks floating around the organization in uh, coaching and player dev roles. And we've we've seen a couple of years of this now with this regime. And I'm curious what you think they have learned from both the successes that they have had, but also the failures, and if there have been any tweaks or changes to the developmental approach there. I think for the major league roster, I've heard mostly positive things where you have uh, a couple of different hitting coaches to go to, you know, whether it's Justin Vili or Pedro Guerrero, you have different styles, different methods of communication where you have, uh, you know, if you really connect with Dustin Lind, you're going to go to Dustin Lind. And if you really connect with this hitting coach and he speaks your language in a way that uh, maybe another hitting coach would not, I think the variety is popular with the players were and it's not just the variety of of ideas and eyeballs on on whatever you're doing on the on the field it is uh just that you have these coaches will be able to make more time it's almost, it's like a class size for teachers where you don't want 30 kids in one class if you have 18 kids in a class it's going to be better for the kids and it, that's a you know kind of a silly comparison but i think the general philosophy works on that level where you will have someone who can devote more time to you and your specific attack plan uh, against a specific pitcher or against a, a team's bullpen before they come in for a four-game series. And I think that helps. And I don't, you know, I'm not exactly Mr. Plugged In. I'm a, I'm a columnist sitting at home and, uh, you know, kind of kind of doing my thing without knowing much, uh, which is my right. And I, but I haven't heard from players like, ah, this is just too many cooks in the kitchen or I just, man, it's too confusing. I have not heard that at all. So I think there is some buy-in with the players. Patrick Dubuque wrote a bit about this in his Baseball Prospectus annual essay, but we're a year removed now from the 2021 experience. And 2022 was sort of the revenge of the projection systems right after the Giants embarrassed the projection systems more so than (laughs) any other team has in the projection era in 2021. So the fact that following up that incredible year where the Giants defied every expectation, statistically oriented or not, does the fact that they They were projected to be pretty mediocre and they were pretty mediocre. Does that change how you perceive 2021 in the sense that, okay, this is not the beginning of the Giants becoming a surprising super team. Maybe this is a one-year wonder and maybe in a way that makes it even more special than we thought it was at the time or maybe we knew that it was that at the time. I mean, how do you think about that season, which is just like the most expectation surpassing and just frankly fun season, even for someone like me who's not really rooting for the Giants, but I was pretty invested in that team at a certain point too. 
I still look back on that season. That's the most amazing regular season I've ever seen. I mean, yeah. I know it didn't work out in the postseason and there was some heartbreak there. Um, but that was, it was remarkable. And it was remarkable in a way that you knew was unsustainable. You knew that Lamont Wade wasn't going to hit uh, 600 in the ninth inning with a one run. You know, like he, you just had all these high leverage hits that were sequenced just the perfect way. And the true talent level of that team might have been a 95 win team and they got 12 extra wins just by virtue of pure nonsense, just pure chicanery. That's how they got to 107. And that's, that's fine. That's just fun. It might not be sustainable. The next year, you don't have Buster Posey and Buster Posey had a tremendous season uh, in 2021. I mean, that was one of the better catching seasons in franchise history and he's gone. You don't have that. You don't have his pitcher whispering. You don't have his 300 batting average. You don't have his the power he brings to the to the catching position and that's gone and then you have Brandon Belt's hurt Brandon Crawford is not uh, the same hitter not even close uh, so you have all those things going against the Giants but I still look at that 2021 team as proof of concept that this front office this coaching staff can make veteran players better and I don't know if you can take that away from them just because Belt was hurt last year and Crawford was, wasn't as effective at the plate. I still think that there is that kernel of this group can make the uh, veteran players better, which is a skill. You know, they're not producing superstar young players, but having a, a skill like that seems like it can be very helpful in the future, especially if you're talking about Mitch Haniger or, or Michael Conforto. I think th if they still have those skills and the Giants can get it out of them, that that's a pretty good uh, skill for the coaching staff to have. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up, whether we still buy that as a, a skill from that season and I guess to some extent the prior season, right? Because if if that was kind of a, a fluke to some extent exceeding the true talent level that year, the Giants got a ton of credit. I mean, they vaulted up into like Dodgers raised territory almost when we talked about teams that were good at player development and Astros and Guardians, et cetera, right? And that was partly based on some of the things they did on the pitching side, which I guess they continued to do to some extent last season, but also on 35-year-olds having career years, right? And it was just like, oh, wow, the Giants, uh, they just hired more coaches and they can sprinkle magic dust over <laughs> these guys and get more out of them than anyone ever anticipated. And so now I wonder whether we can still have confidence that that's the case. Like, did we buy too much into that? And gave them too much credit for that? Or are we taking too much credit away for not being able to do that last year too? Like how long do you have to do that to be seen to have a skill at doing that? I am still confident that they have an eye for we can use this, this skill that this player brings. We can use it. We can weaponize it, perhaps. I still think they have that. Jock Peterson is a good example. Uh, I know his defense wasn't outstanding. Uh, he had a weird, weird slump in the middle of the season where he just could not hit a home run. But he was good offensively last year. The Giants saw that and said, yeah, we can use that, even though he was coming off a little bit of a weird season. Um, and I think that their pitching, uh, their ability to look and get an Alex Cobb over some of the alternatives, that is hard to overstate. That is if the Angels had that ability for the last decade, we'd 
think much differently about the Angels. If they could go out and say, ah, we're going to get Carlos Rodon and we're going to uh, get Kevin Gossman and we're going to get Alex Wood and, and we're going to try this and that and look, they're good and now we're the Angels and we're in the postseason every year. Hurrah. That, that's what they've been missing for uh, a lot of those past years. So I think the Giants, they tend to bring in these pitchers, whether it's Alex Cobb or Jacob Junis, or, or they just have these ideas that tend to pan out uh, with more regularity than other teams. So I think that's a good thing. I think if you're Ross Stripling, you are happy that the Giants uh, wanted to be in the Ross Stripling business. Uh, same with Manaya. I think that they still have those skills and they're important and it's easy to overlook because, you know, last year they, they were 500. Uh, the Pythagorean were their 83 and 79. That's not terrible. I mean, it's not 107 wins, but they still did enough right to where you should not write off that front office entirely. All right. So that takes us to the end here. And you are accustomed to us forcing you to make a win total prediction every season in these previews. And if, as I know you always do, you have spent hours and hours poring over the projections and the spreadsheets and formulating the official Grant Brisby projected win total, you are still free to give us that. But going to ask a different question this time. <laughs> Sorry, all that work went to waste, I know. <laughs> but what would you define as a successful season for the Giants this year? What should their goals be? How would you qualify success if we're looking back on this team at the end of the season and and saying, was this a good year for the Giants or not? And And that can be at the major league level. It can be in terms of wins or it could be development. It could be extensions. It could be anything. I think 100% it's going to be development. I think if you can look at next offseason and say, okay, the Giants have these holes to fill, but you know Kyle Harrison's going to be in the rotation because he was in the rotation in 2023 and he did excellent. Uh, you know Marco Luciano's going to be around because he got his cup of coffee and he went all the way up to the majors and he was there after August. And if you have a few of these, whether it's Casey Schmidt getting uh, taking over the third base job, if it's uh, Joey Bart hitting another uh, level with his offensive production, if it's Tyro Estrada you know, all of a sudden becoming a leadoff hitter supreme and stealing 40 bases, if you can go into next offseason not having to rejigger the entire roster with you know guys free agents like Conforto and Hanniger and if you can go into that offseason saying these are this is our future we can build complementary pieces around these guys that's successful season even if the giants finish 81 and 81 again i think that's what's missing from this front office. They've proven to me that they can do a lot of things right, that they can make trades that that are sensible, that they can sign players and make them better, that they can sort out the diamonds in the rough for the rotation in the bullpen. But what's missing is that last final piece. Yes, we can give you David VR and you can expect him to be in the lineup for the next five years. That's just not been there and it's about time. And that's where the fans are getting restless. Yeah. And I don't know what win total prediction you were going to give us if I made you give us one, but the Fangraphs depth charts projection is like 82 to 83, which is the same as the projection for the Twins, the team that we're about to talk about. But it feels to me like the 
outcomes are are narrower for the Giants than the Twins or or that the ceiling is lower. And maybe I would have said the same thing in 2021 and I would have looked like a real dummy. And that's uh, (laughs) probably why we're not doing the projected win totals this year because no one knows anything and anything can happen. And just from sheer randomness alone, a, a team can vary several wins in a season. So who knows? But I guess it's harder for me to look at the Giants than the Twins and say, oh, if everything comes together and this guy is good and that guy is good, then who knows? They could win a division or they could win a World Series or whatever, which is partly a product of the division they're in. They're not in the AL Central, I suppose, but also just, uh, I guess, a little less uh, high ceiling talent. But then again, maybe the Giants will turn players into high ceiling talent that, that we didn't suspect. I will also say that I have a weird taste in my mouth about predicting season win totals. Um, real effectively wild heads will remember that in 2020, <laughs> yeah. I predicted yeah. like, you know, uh, 30 wins or something like that because the pandemic's going to shut everything down. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Right. Uh, so I hate giving predictions yeah. after that. That was terrible. That was uh, yeah. my fault. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Grant caused the pandemic, and that's why we are not doing projected win totals anymore. He is too powerful. <laughs> too powerful. Too powerful. Well, you can find Grant on Twitter at Grant Brisby. You can find Grant at The Athletic writing about the Giants. You can hear Grant at The Athletic on The Athletic Baseball Show, yakking it up with Andy McCullough and Mark Craig on the round table. Thank you, as always, Grant. Thank you so much for having me. Coming for you, Long and Hagen. <laughs> All right, we'll take a brief break now, and we'll be back with Aaron Gleeman, also of The Athletic, to talk about the Minnesota Twins. All right. Well, from the team that almost signed Carlos Correa, one of the two that almost signed Carlos Correa, to the team that actually did, and from one writer for The Athletic to another, we are now speaking to Aaron Gleeman about the Minnesota Twins. Aaron covers the Twins for The Athletic, has covered the Twins in one place or another for decades at this point, and he is also the Gleeman in the Gleeman and the Geek podcast. Aaron, welcome back. Thank you guys for having me. So a lot of teams did most of their major offseason business pretty early this offseason, but it seems to me that there may be no team that changed the trajectory of its winter in January as much as the Minnesota Twins did, with Correa coming back, with the Arise Lopez trade, with the Michael A. Taylor trade. Can you sort of sum up what the mood of the fan base was prior to mid-January, let's say, and how fans are feeling now? Oh, it, I mean, as the uh, kids would say, they were they were down bad. Uh-huh. Uh, it was uh, it was horrible. It was abysmal. I'm, I only said that because you said I've been covering the twins for decades, which is yeah. true. But also, now you've, feel you've like... established your youth yes. with the, with that line. Thank you. But yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, at the end of last year, it was it was very bad because they were in first place for I don't know two thirds of the season and then just completely collapsed, and so everyone was just in a terrible mood for the last two months and that extended to the winter. And the other thing is the twins, I would say more than almost any other team under this regime, which is now year seven for Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, they, they weighed out the off season to the incredible degree. Usually like 
they'll they'll wait. I mean, they didn't sign Correa last year until the middle of spring training. But yeah, that's what made I think this offseason so interesting. Like you said, they made a bunch of moves, which is uncharacteristic for them to do it, you know, in January and December. And they really I, I don't know how much they're gonna have to do now from this point till opening day. I think they could maybe add a reliever or something like that, but they got so much of their shopping done so much earlier than I would have ever expected them to, or they've ever shown, you know, proclivity to do. And we were, we were asked to grade teams off seasons last week at the athletic. And I was thinking to myself, does Correa alone make it a, A?" I ended up with a a B plus, which people said I was very uh, pessimistic on. (laughs) Yeah. Zero A's. No one got an A. You're all pretty tough graders. I mean, the Correa thing is, I think a, a very good move, but it's more so a shocking move for mm-hmm. someone who's been covering the Twins forever. But <laughs> I think the rest of their moves, whether it was the Arise for Lopez trade, uh, signing Joey Gallo, you know, some of the smaller scale stuff, I don't know that they were like home run moves, but I think they checked every box. And then when you add Correa on top of that, which I, th- I think no one had any real right to expect, even at the beginning of the offseason, let alone in the middle of the offseason. I don't know. It's, it's been a very interesting, you know, quicker moving offseason than I ever anticipated. So the Twins aren't typically a team that is going to outspend everyone for the top or one of the top free agents, and that's why they haven't typically landed the Carlos Correa, right? And so when the Twins signed Correa last time, I mean, no offense to the team, but it was like, oh, wow, he went to the Twins. Okay, no one really saw that coming. And so for that to be the outcome two winters in a row— seems extremely improbable. And I guess something unusual had to happen each time for that to be the outcome, right? I mean, there was a lockout and Correa maybe didn't get his deal done and didn't get the deal he was expecting. And then the twins were there offering him the shorter term deal. And then this time, of course, the whole Saka with his physicals and his ankles. So the universe had to do something strange to intervene, I guess, for Carlos Correa to be a twin and then to continue to be a twin. But you get Carlos Correa if you're a Twins fan. So however it happened, you're probably pretty happy. Is there any sort of misgiving about the way that it went down this time, given that it took Correa, you know, signing with two other teams or agreeing to terms with two other teams? And and then the Twins were just the last team standing after those teams pulled out. And then, of course, there are the concerns about his ankle, the sort of nebulous. Is this thing going to go bad at some point? I mean, are there any reservations whatsoever about the way that Carlos Correa came back to this team? Or is it just, hey, we got him and that's all that matters? I think maybe not so much with the front office, who are basically just happy however it happened. But I do think, you know, the, and I, I think it's it's fair enough to say what you just said, which is it took a strange, very strange set of circumstances for this to happen. And those circumstances weren't just random. There's some, you know, downsides involved here. And I think Minnesotans in general have kind of a weird chip on our shoulder where we're sort of, you know, fly over country and forgotten and all that. And so there is a sense of like, well, yeah, they got their guy and they actually got him for contract terms that were much more, you know, favorable to the twins than they could have ever imagined at the start of this thing. But well, hey, these, you know, two big market teams tried to sign him and ultimately passed because of his ankle and are the twins just getting damaged goods, all that stuff kind of plays into the insecurities of, of Minnesotans in general. So I, I've definitely seen a lot of that. And, you know, I, it is true that his ankle is, I think, going to loom over the rest of his career or, you know, you can't prove that it's never going to be an issue until he's done playing, basically. And so 
the twins seem fairly confident having, you know, had them in the clubhouse and with their training staff for an entire season that their knowledge of his health and that specifically the ankle goes beyond, you know, looking at an MRI exam or, you know, the entire process that the Mets and the, the Giants went through. But I mean, that's some level of subjectivity. There's randomness in there. I have no doubt that the ankle concerned those other teams. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of like, you know, skepticism around the how the entire process played out, but ultimately they got their guy, they got him for a deal that they never would have been able to even, I mean, they never would have even offered him a six-year, $200 million deal at the start of the offseason because he would have laughed it off and it would have been ridiculous. So I don't know. It, this is This is how the Minnesota Twins end up with Carlos Correa. There was no real other way for that to happen, uh, at least in, in terms of how they were viewing him and, and the offers that they were making originally. So Correa's ankle is a, a potential looming injury. Unfortunately, the Twins have a number of present injuries that they have to navigate. In fact, there are so many of them that I feel like we should just start banging through them and see where folks are. One of them I think we're not expecting to see this player back until later of the, in the summer, but since he has ostensibly played shortstop in the past and might have played it in the future had Correa not come back into the fold, what is the current status of Royce Lewis? Okay, so Royce Lewis is coming back from a second torn ACL in his many seasons. His timeline right now is June, July, return to game action. Now that could mean AAA, that could mean extended spring, that could mean the Twins, obviously. Uh, you know, they wanted in the middle of last year to play him alongside Correa. And so they started working him out at third and left and center. They throw him out in center for three innings and he crashes into the wall and re-tears the ACL. So that didn't go very well. But now for him to be part of the Twins plans, which he definitely still is. I mean, he looked great in the, I don't know, 30 triple A games and a dozen major league games he played between the injuries last year. But he's going to have to play somewhere other than shortstop. I think ideally this year, next year, over the next six years, he could potentially be the backup shortstop to Correa and get, you know, 20, 30 games a year there or something. But he's going to have to play the outfield. He's going to play third. I think potentially long-term second base might be a fit for him. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, they're still very hopeful. He looked, like I said, he looked great between the injuries. And I think in the second half it's fair to assume he'll be part of the plan. But there's really – there's so little precedent for a prospect coming back from back-to-back torn ACLs that nobody knows you know, quite what to expect or what to project for him. You've given me so many like, lovely potential transitions here, Aaron, and I'm going to start with this one, which hopefully won't read us too hacky. Speaking of guys who have gotten hurt playing center field before, eh? Eh? <laughs> Let's not talk bad. about not bad. Let's talk about Byron Buxton. So Buxton is one of the most fun players to watch when he is healthy. He put up four wins in just 92 games last season, but he once again was limited because of injuries. Where is Buxton and what, you know, what might the the Twins attempt this time to try to keep him healthy for a full campaign? So Buxton is fully healthy at the moment. You know, in <laughs> Byron Buxton terms that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. But yeah, the plan is he'll be ready to go when when they report to camp in a week or so. I think for the first time ever, really, they brought in a legitimate kind of high-end backup or low-end starting center fielder in in Michael Taylor under the presumption, which is fair, that Buxton's going to miss some time. And even if he doesn't miss that much time, they're going to work him through the DH spot to, to keep his legs fresher anyway. I think it's, you know, years past the point where that should have become a bigger roster consideration for them. 
They've trotted out all kinds of weird backup center fielders over the years. No one can be surprised at this point if Buxton misses time. You kind of have to just plan around that. I think Taylor, at least defensively, means that when Buxton's not in the lineup, they will still have elite defense in center. And I think their their overall outfield defense with Kepler and right, Gallo and left, and some of their backup guys are pretty good too, has a chance to be like one of the biggest strengths on the entire team. So yeah. Buxton is healthy or healthy-ish, but you know the odds of him playing 125, 135 games are, are pretty slim. But as you said, if he can play 100 games, he's an all-star caliber performer. Yeah. And you know I think he's making 15 million a year uh, for the next six years. And it, he can do that in a month. He's literally done that, you know, 15 million in value in a month before. So he's a huge part of the team. But I think finally, after five or six years in a row of this, the Twins have kind of said, let's actually plan for having a backup center fielder who can step into the, the starting lineup and not be a huge drop off defensively. Let me try an injury-related transition here. Speaking of players who have been sidelined by the same injury for multiple seasons, or a similar injury at least, what about Alex Kirilov? To me, he's like maybe the biggest question mark, at least in the lineup, because similar to Lewis with the back-to-back torn ACLs, Kirilov has had back-to-back season-ending wrist surgeries. The first one two years ago essentially didn't take. He still had pain swinging. And so they did a, a second surgery in the middle of last season where they they shaved down the bone to create some more room for his, I don't know, ligaments to to move around. If you can tell, I did not go to medical school. But uh, <laughs> they they traded Luis Arise, who played a lot of first base last year. And so the path is definitely clear for Kirilov to be the primary first baseman. I think whether that's opening day or maybe he needs a little bit more time just to get some more swings in in camp, we'll, we'll find out more in the next two or three weeks probably. But, yeah, I mean, what he's, he's shown such great flashes, but they've been in such limited opportunities because they've come in between these wrist problems, and the wrist problems just make it impossible for him to do anything. But in between those and, and going back to his minor league days, I mean, he just has a such a great swing, all fields power. I mean, he just is sort of a prototypical number three hitter. and so. I don't want to say this is a make or break season because he's, I think he's still only 24 years old, but he's in a position where if healthy, he's going to be the the primary first baseman. And if not healthy, they're going to have to do some, some roster shuffling because they've traded the other primary first baseman in a rise. There is some roster shuffling that was speculated about that hasn't yet taken place. I wonder, do you think that Max Kepler is long for the twins? He's been a rumored trade target, uh, for much of the offseason and given some of the other moves that you mentioned, you know, bringing in Michael A. Taylor, signing Gallo, is he viewed as having been made redundant on the roster? Is there much interest there? I've been assuming they, I mean, for years now, but especially this offseason, even going into the offseason, I looked at, you know, with all the left-handed bats, we just talked about Kirloff, they had a rise, Trevor Larnick, Matt Walner, Nick Gordon, it goes on and on. I just thought Kepler hasn't been productive for a couple years. He's 30. He's making, I think, eight and a half million. It seemed like a natural trade uh, candidate. And then they went out and signed Joey Gallo, who skill set wise is is pretty similar. And I thought, well, this means Kepler is going to be traded immediately. And now we are two months later. And I, I no longer think he's going to be traded, certainly by opening day. I think they like the idea of Kepler in right, Gallo in left, Buxton in center with Michael Taylor working in there just for the defense alone. There's some optimism, I guess, like there is with many left-handed hitters that the shift limitations are really going to elevate them. I'm pretty skeptical about that when it comes to Kepler, just because 
he hits a lot of weak grounders or routine grounders and a lot of pop-ups. So I don't know that that's going to affect him that much. But I also just think the Twins said from the beginning of the offseason, on and off record, like, we're not just trying to dump his $8 million salary. We think he has actual value. We think we can get that value. And so it's easy to now uh, connect the dots and say they they just didn't get the value they thought. And so instead of dumping him, they're just going to keep all the all-field depth they can. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm not a huge believer in Kepler as a, I don't know, bounce back or late breakout candidate just because we've seen this story play out. I feel like every fantasy article with sleepers or breakouts for like five years has said, well, Max Kepler can't continue to hit 220 for the rest of his life. And it turns out, <laughs> you know, he, he sort of can. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever a team season is derailed by injuries to the extent that the Twins was last year, I think sometimes there can be clamoring for, oh, we need to do something differently. We need to change our medical staff or train our training techniques. Have the Twins done anything along those lines or talked about changing anything? doing anything differently or have they just concluded it's just one of those fluky things because that can be the explanation too so they fired their head trainer and they brought in a guy named nick paparesta who's been the oakland A's trainer for years and years and actually going way back was with the the i'm assuming it was the devil rays at that point he was the rehab coordinator for rocco baldelli when rocco baldelli was on Hmm. the i guess disabled list at that point for the devil rays so they have not overhauled, but the the top trainer has been replaced. I mean, I I have just from a kind of projecting standpoint or roster standpoint, hopefully people are getting the the hint here as we talk about this, that there are just so many injuries with them. And I've just found it, it's so difficult to try to project anything for any of this. Whether you look at the lineup, the rotation, there are three or four guys seemingly at every corner of the roster that you can look at who either are question marks to be healthy this year or just missed a huge chunk of time last year. And the Twins have tried to compile as much depth as they can. We talked about Michael Taylor. They kind of did the same thing with Kyle Farmer as a backup infielder. They brought in Christian Vasquez to be the new catcher, which means the old starting catcher, Ryan Jeffers, is now a high-end backup. So they've tried to, to do all that. And I do think if they can stay even reasonably healthy, just sort of not have horrible luck with health, that can be worth, I don't know, five, 10 wins compared to last season on its own. But it's just so difficult to kind of wrap your head around that or, or your hands around that and, and be specific with how many wins and losses it actually means because who knows with Alex Kirilov, who knows with Byron Buxton, who knows with you know all kinds of guys that we've talked about. Someone like Tyler Malley is the same thing. He made two starts for the Twins last year. You know, he's quote unquote healthy, but I'm, I'm skeptical on that too. So yeah, I mean... It, it seems like a cop-out at times, at least from my point of view, to tell fans, you know, the injuries and health are going to be the biggest factor for this season, regardless of the moves they've actually made. But I, I do kind of think that is true. And maybe we can just continue the injury train and use this as a, a way to start to talk about the rotation, which has had its own issues. What is the, the current state of Kenta Maeda? Kent Amada was at uh, Twins Fest last week and basically said he's fully healthy. They, there was some thought to bringing him back as a reliever in September of last year. They ultimately opted not to do that. And so by the time he reports the camp, I think he'll have over 18 months since Tommy John surgery. The hope is that he's going to be a full-time member of the starting rotation. He said he's a full goal for camp, which would obviously be huge for them. I mentioned Tyler Malley is sort of in the same boat in that Right now, everyone says he's ready to go, but he's had a year of shoulder problems and basically barely pitched for the Twins after that. If those two guys are are healthy and can give them, you know, 25, 30 starts apiece, 
that's huge for their rotation. But if those two guys are not healthy, which when we last saw, I mean, it's been a while since they've been healthy and Mally was never healthy for the twins. Yeah. Then you start to dip into that depth a lot, a lot sooner than you would like. And so that's a perfect example of what I was talking about, which is like, you can talk about how good the rotation has the potential to be. Cause I think they have six above average starters in place, but by the time they get to camp, end of the end of camp, and you have to actually line it up for opening day. Will they have six, five, four? How many starters will they actually have? So yeah, they, they're optimistic about Maeda, especially, and I think cautiously optimistic about Tyler Malley at this point. Well, and when Maeda returns, he will have a different pitching coach than he did when last he took the mound for Minnesota. You know, Wes Johnson's departure was a while ago, but I'm curious sort of how the organization has thought about both filling that role and sort of what the the reaction has been internally to that as we look ahead to the to the new season. I mean, it was definitely shocking to everyone involved at the time. He left for LSU in the middle of last season, uh, got basically double his salary to do it. They had, you know, 72 hours to react and, and they named Pete Mackey, the, the interim pitching coach. And my assumption was not because of anything he did poorly or anything, but I, I assumed once the season was over, they would look and try to bring in somebody from the college ranks or from another organization to be the permanent pitching coach. Instead, they're sticking with Pete Mackey as the permanent pitching coach. Everyone pitchers seem to talk about him in terms of information and approach and, and all that stuff as He's really good, but the biggest difference I saw, at least, between him and Wes Johnson is just personality. When he when he goes out there to to you know visit on the mound in the middle of an inning, Wes Johnson had this just this much different presence and much different demeanor. And so I think the hope is a year into this job, Pete Mackey can have a little bit more of that, and that the information he's got and the stuff he's trying to to get across is is high level and everyone believes in. And if he can get a little bit more comfortable with kind of the interpersonal stuff, I think there's a chance to be really good. But the Twins are also one of those organizations that will tell you, especially on the pitching front, it's a team effort. I mean, they have Colby Suggs is the now assistant pitching coach who was the bullpen pitching coach. Everybody kind of moved up one spot. And then they have a guy named Josh Kulk, who is known as kind of their pitching guru, held that same job with the Rays for, I think, a decade. And so it's it's a lot of cooks uh, involved uh, in the on the pitching front. But I think from a fan base, at least, there was a lot of, oh, it fell apart right when Wes Johnson left. And at least from my perspective, I felt like things were teetering on the edge even before Wes Johnson left. Mm. So if there's a knock on the Twins starting pitching, I guess, other than the depth, as you said, it's that maybe there's no obvious ace, but the ostensible ace, the top of the rotation pitcher probably is a new addition, Pablo Lopez. So take us through the Twins rationale in the Arise Lopez trade, because obviously Arise was a fun player and a productive player and someone that you're sorry to lose, but makes some sense from the Twins perspective and that they certainly did need pitching. So was that a tough thing for Twins fans to lose Arise? And was it worth the sacrifice? I mean, he was he was hugely popular. And also, like, there are some players, like, let's say, Williams Astadio, who I love, <laughs> who's hugely popular, but not actually that great of a Major League Baseball player. Arise, I think, threaded that needle and was both. I mean, he just won a batting title. But I think the, the Twins, because he has had so many leg injuries and is kind of stretched defensively, they started to view him strictly as a first baseman DH. And once that's the case, once you're at the bottom of the defensive spectrum, they kind of tossed him into the same bucket of left-handed bats, you know, Kirloff, all the guys we just talked about, Kirloff included. 
and that made him a little bit easier to move in that sense from a from a trading from a strength to address a weakness which they need pitching i mean i i do think they have six above average starters i think you know lopez is right at the top there sunny gray we've talked about maui and maeda coming back from injuries you also have Joe Ryan, who was pretty good in his uh, first full season last year, and then Bailey Ober, who's been good in between injuries as well. But the odds of you know having an actual, oh, no, we have six guys for five spots, what do we do? I don't think that's an actual problem that they will ever really have to deal with. Uh, it's a very nice thing to have. So I think, like you mentioned, they, they lack, I don't know, a true ace, but most teams lack a true ace. I mean, the Twins haven't really had one since Johan Santana. But I do think they have the most above average starting pitchers assembled that they've had in a very, very long time, maybe in 20 years that I've been writing about them. They just have a lot of guys who, to me at least, are solid number two slash number three starters. They're hoping someone like Lopez can take a step up even from that. Ryan maybe has a little bit more growth too if his if his slider improves. So it's not a, you know, Cy Young caliber frontline starter situation, but they they go at least six deep, and I also think they have a couple prospects in Louis Varlin and Simeon Woods Richardson, and they're hoping to get Chris Paddock back uh, in the second half. So they might go eight or nine deep in above-average starters, which in Twins history has been very rare. What about the bullpen? Can you say the same in terms of <laughs> solid, dependable options? The bullpen's always a bit of a black box, but how does the Twins bullpen stack up? This is the, I mean, Duran was incredible last year. I think he was the best rookie reliever in Twins history, to me at least. And, you know, the assumption is he's just going to be great, whether it's eighth inning, ninth inning, whatever. I think they tr- they traded for Jorge Lopez at the deadline, hoping he would either be the closer or the setup man. And he was a bit of a mess. Emilio Pagan was one of the worst relievers in baseball last year, but they brought him back. This is The bullpen is definitely the one spot where at the beginning of the offseason, I just assumed they felt they were at least one setup caliber veteran, probably right-hander away from from feeling good, and they've just added nothing to the bullpen. So they're counting on Duran being amazing again. They're counting on the improvements that Griffin Jacks made last year being legit. They're counting on Jorge Alcala coming back from a missed season with injury. I, I do think they have some some good pieces, and there's the potential to have some of those you know excess starting pitchers get their feet wet in the majors as relievers too. I, I think there's good depth. I'm just kind of surprised, given all the other additions led by Correa, that they wouldn't, you know, go spend another six million bucks to, you know, re-sign Michael Fulmer or something like that, just to have a little bit more consistent or somebody you can count on for the first month or two of the season. But yeah, I, I would say I don't want to say it's a weakness because I think it still has a, a the potential to be a good bullpen, but it's the the one box that they didn't really check. You mentioned some of the reinforcements they might get on the prospect side in terms of pitching, but just in general, are there particular guys who you anticipate Twins fans will get a chance to see from the minor league ranks this year? I mean, I think most of their top 10 prospects have a pretty good chance of, of reaching the majors. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Royce Lewis, who's technically already been in the majors. Uh, their number one prospect is Brooks Lee, who ended last year two months after being drafted, playing in the double-A playoffs. I, I actually think there's a legitimate chance he is a second-half option for the Twins in the infield. Matt Wallner, we saw a little bit in September. He's a slugging corner outfielder we're definitely going to see this year. Austin Martin, Edward Julian, Louis Varlin, Simeon Woods-Richardson. I, I think all those guys not only can be in the majors, but probably will be in the majors for, for a decent stretch of time. So it's 
you have a little bit of the previous core has already departed guys like Barrios and Sano and Rosario and all that. And there's some pieces in place. Obviously Correa is going to be the connective tissue there along with Buxton. But I do think you're going to see quite a bit of turnover in both the, the lineup, which they're, they're much heavier on position player prospects, high end guys than they are on, on the pitching side. But I do think twins fans are going to see hopefully a competitive contending team that has a lot of veterans, but as the season wears on, especially if there are a lot of injuries again, they're going to work in top prospects as kind of the the next in line guys, as opposed to the last couple of years. Often it's just been sort of uh, organizational soldier types who have gotten a chance. We've talked a lot about the pitching, but of course there's another aspect to run prevention and that's defense. And the twins were not a bad defensive team last year, but it seems like to me, they have the potential to be a really strong defensive team this year. As you said, you just wrote about the outfield. You have Taylor, you have Buxton, you have Gallo. Pretty just strong all the way up the middle with Correa coming back with Christian Vasquez behind the plate. Like This seems like it could be a a really solid defensive team, which is one of those things that sometimes we overlook when we talk about a, a team's pitching. You know, Getting good defense can make up for some weaknesses on the pitching side. Yeah, nobody ever goes, they need improved pitching and is ever satisfied when you go, well, yeah, I mean, they did a few things on pitching, but they really improved the defense. Nobody ever believes that. It's just, (laughs) it's a hard thing to kind of grasp, but I do agree with that. I mean, I think barring a trade and obviously barring injuries, I think their outfield, if it's not the best in baseball, it's got to be top three in baseball. Um, Even if Buxton misses significant time, I think Correa's numbers weren't as amazing at shortstop last year as they have been in the past, but to my eyes, at least, there weren't a whole lot of plays that he didn't make at shortstop. I think Jorge Polanco is probably underrated at second. Uh, Alex Kirloff, if healthy at first, has a is a very good defensive first baseman. I also think they're going to play uh, Joey Gallo at first a little bit, and he's pretty good. You mentioned Vasquez. It was signed largely for his defense behind the plate. The, the one spot that I would point to and say this is likely to be below average defensively is probably third base, where they're going to give Jose Miranda a, a clear runway there. But I don't think he's going to be a butcher there. I just think he's a little bit lacking in range. But if you know third base is your one weak spot and you have a, a elite outfield and a very good infield and catcher, you know this is going to be a very good defense. Even the the backup plans are largely very good defenders. And so if the pitching improves and it, it needs to, if they're going to contend, I think this is you know it's not going to be under the radar, but it's going to be one of those spots where. You look in June or July and you go, a lot of the pitchers are having pretty good years. A lot of the fly ball pitchers, especially, which they have a lot of in the rotation, are having pretty good years. And I think that was part of the plan to to dramatically upgrade the defense. And as we learn, courtesy of Correa, Miranda's looking sexier than ever. Yeah. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but I also wanted to ask about Gallo because I, I think maybe some people were perplexed by that addition. I mean, the Twins have a bunch of outfielders. You have Trevor Larnick, a, a guy we haven't really talked about that much, another player coming off an injury, but a left-handed hitting outfielder. So how do they see Gallo fitting in? Is there a real reason to bank on Gallo getting back to who he was in Texas? And if not, how long a rope does he have? It's interesting because I think you know, a one-year $11 million deal for Gallo just by itself, regardless of the team or the situation, is logical to me as a you know high upside bounce back guy, not a long term deal. But I just the Twins seemed like one of the teams that le- that needed a you know slugging left handed hitting corner outfielder least. They just they had so many and still do even after trading 
uh, arise from the DH first base mix, but they clearly believe that they can get Gallo back to where he was a couple years ago. And he was an all-star as recently as 2021. I also think like we just talked about, they view him as a, a amazing defender, not only in left and right, but someone who can play a decent center field, although that's less needed now that they brought in Michael Taylor. And I think he's going to play quite a bit of first base. He could potentially even be an emergency guy at third base uh, and give you some flexibility there. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I would have probably put left-handed corner bat as the lowest possible priority target for the Twins this offseason. And so part of me thinks the fact that they immediately went out and brought in Gallo signals that they really believe very, very strongly that he can bounce back and provide huge, huge upside because, you know, 11 million isn't huge even for a, a mid-sized payroll team like the Twins, but I, I do view him as a little bit of a luxury item. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that works out, who he holds back, probably Matt Walner, at least initially is the guy who will go to AAA who might've been in the mix without Gallo around. But yeah, I think you're going to see Gallo as basically an everyday player, at least until, unless or until he proves that last season uh, was a, a true decline. I think he's going to play both corner spots. I think he's going to play a lot of first base. And I think he might even play some center field. So I want to ask about how the twins view themselves and sort of where you situate them within the division, because you know, I think it's become a staple of these conversations, particularly around teams in in both central divisions that like they're good, but like maybe they're good for the central. So do you think that the Twins are a competitive team just within the context of the division that they play in? Or are they a team that you could see making a long playoff run? Kind of how do you how do you see them versus their both in division competition and then across the AL more generally? Well, the Twins have rendered my usual opinion that the biggest key to winning in the playoffs is just getting to the playoffs because they're 0-18 in the playoffs <laughs> in the last like 20 years. So it seems particularly absurd for people in Minnesota to hold that opinion. So I've tried to shy away from that as a talking point, but I don't think they're a great team. I think if you, you know, if this was, you know, an NBA style playoff where it was just AL had eight seeds or whatever and NL had eight seeds. I don't think I would necessarily project the Twins to be higher than, you know, seventh, something like that. But, and this has been true for 20 years. The AL Central provides an opportunity for a slightly above average team to make the playoffs and probably to be perceived as a little bit better than they are, although the changes to the uh, the balance of the schedule this year might change that a little. But I think within the context of this division, they're a very good team. Within the context of the entire American League, they're probably closer to a slightly above average or average team. But, you know, that matters if you're competing for wildcard spots, which potentially they are. But my answer to that is always, if you don't win the AL Central in most years, you really don't have that much of a beef for your overall playoff picture or even not getting into the playoffs because most of the time, it, it doesn't take a great team to win the AL Central. And I certainly think that's going to be the case in, in 2023. So I think you've been doing these previews with us since 2014. So you are probably uh, bracing yourself for the win total prediction <laughs> closer here. But yeah. we're actually moving away from that this year. <laughs> you're you're welcome to offer one if you want to. But we know that the Fangrass depth charts have them pegged as a roughly a 82 to 83 win team now. But we want to ask maybe a, a broader question, which is just 
what would constitute a successful season for the Twins or what should their realistic goals be? And that could be at the major league level. That could be at the minor league level when we're looking back in November and fans are evaluating the season that they had. Aside from the obvious, uh, everyone wants to win the World Series. What would be, okay, job well done. This was a, a year when good progress was made or boxes were checked. I mean, there are some small things you can do that we've talked about them. If if the majority of this you know lengthy injured list is mostly healthy, and especially some guys like Royce Lewis can kind of get back on track and reestablish themselves as core pieces for the Twins, that would be huge, not only for this season, but going forward. I think within the division, the expectation should be that they're going to be competitive through the end of the season, whether that means, you know, coming up a little short or, or reclaiming the division title after a couple of real down years, that would probably qualify as a success coming off last season. But ultimately, the Twins have put themselves in a position where no matter what happens during the regular season, whether they're coming off, you know, 2019 when they won 100 and something games or they're coming off the last couple of years where they were a, a pretty bad team by the end of the season, it's, it's, did they win a playoff game? And, you know, beyond that, did they win a playoff series? But I think people at this point would settle for one playoff win just so they can snap that streak, just so when SportsCenter puts up that same list of uh, longest North, North American <laughs> losing streaks, it's not the Twins for once. I do think that has a weird effect on a, on a fan base to kind of just beat them down over and over again to the point where bad seasons people react to normally and then good seasons – People go, eh, yeah, but they got swept out of the playoffs anyway. So what's the difference? So if big picture, you know, 10,000 foot view down at this team, a successful season for the Twins is winning a playoff game. Mm -hmm. Smaller picture within that, I think, you know, getting a lot of these injured players back on track so that they can start to plan for 2014 and beyond. And you can start to see the formation of the next core of this team. That's huge. But if they don't win a playoff game at the end of the year, I'm hopefully going to be back on your show this time next year, <laughs> and we'll be having a similar conversation. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think the attendance was the lowest since 2001 for the Twins yeah. last season, and it was a disappointing season, so it's hard to blame people for not showing up, especially late in the year. But that is maybe just a reflection of people kind of being over it and wanting to get back to winning postseason games already. So maybe that's another way to judge success, too, if fans are excited enough and engaged enough to come back to the park, then that would be a good sign, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. They just had a, uh, a media session with the, the Twins president, Dave Sampeter, and he basically said, we'll top last year's attendance, which, as you said, was very, very low for them. But, you know, getting back to 2 million fans, that's great compared to 1.8 million fans. But I, I do think there's a, a low-ish morale that it was, it was raised a little by Correa and some of the other things we're talking about. But there's a kind of I'll believe it when I see it approach to all things twins at this point, at least, you know, on Twitter and on article comments and my email box that I think you can't get rid of that until you get rid of it. And the only way to really get rid of that is go win the division title or sneak in as a wild card and do something in the playoffs. And I don't know that I would point to this year's team as the, you know, the best candidate to do that compared to any other, you know, 10 other twins teams of the last 20 years. But it's been very hard to predict success for Twins playoff teams or Twins teams in general in the playoffs over the last couple of decades. So why can't this team do it? It's a, it's a, I view it as a winnable division for a good but not great team. And, and that's where I think the Twins stand right now. 
All right. Well, you can leave your angry comments about the twins <laughs> under Aaron's articles at The Athletic, or you can send him your angry tweets about the twins at Aaron Gleeman. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also listen to his podcast about the twins, Gleeman and the Geek. Thanks as always, Aaron. Of course. Thank you, guys. Aaron, by the way, confided that he had a, a win total prediction holstered. He was ready for us to ask him that question. He was going to go with 85. But again, how interesting would 85 have been? As right. Aaron said, that wouldn't have shocked anyone. That would have opened anyone's eyes. So I guess I'm giving you that <laughs> prediction anyway. It's unofficial because Aaron didn't utter it himself. But that is uh, roughly in the range that the projections are yielding. And, and that will typically be the case. So we're going to end with the Pass Blast. This is episode 1965, and thus the Pass Blast comes from 1965 and also from David Lewis, our new Pass Blaster, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And David writes, 1965, The Hustler's Handbook. So David is trying out a, a different approach this year based on a book that came out in the year in question. So Three years after the publication of his autobiography, Vec as in Rec, Bill Vec released his second book titled The Hustler's Handbook. Released in 1965, the book, according to an ad in the Chicago Tribune, includes, among other things, discussion of CBS's purchase of the Yankees, the anatomy of a baseball owner, and apparently sheds new light on the Black Sox scandal. The May 17, 1965 issue of Sports Illustrated contained an extended preview of the book. The preview includes discussion of Yogi Berra's hiring and subsequent firing as manager of the Yankees in 1964. Summarizing Berra's tenure, Vec wrote, when you sum up Barra's year as manager, then you have to say he was thrown into the job cold, that his team fell apart on him, that there was a minimum of help from the front office and that he was being undercut by some of his players, and he still won. I wouldn't award him a gold star for the year, but I wouldn't give him a failing mark either, not by a long shot. David concludes the full book was released in the fall of 1965 and was met with generally positive reviews dubbed the baseball book of the year by the oh. Chicago Tribune. Yeah. So I will link to the book and I will link to that SI preview and the Chicago Tribune ad. But as it happens, complete coincidence, I bought this book last week. What? The Hustler's Handbook. Yeah. Because Bill Vec's first book, Vec is in Wreck, which he wrote with Ed Lynn, who was also his co-author on The Hustler's Handbook, is probably my favorite baseball book. If if pressed, I think I would probably say Vec is in Wreck. I, I read that several years ago and I got a lot of content out of it. I remember talking mm -hmm. about it on the podcast and writing about it for BP because Vec, who of course is a, a Hall of Famer and one of baseball's all-time colorful characters, he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways and, and he was a, a forward thinker and he was very frank and maybe prone to some tall tales too, but just really an entertaining book and an insightful book and I learned a lot from it. And for some reason, I just, I never picked up the sequel, The Hustler's Handbook, which is, I think, not regarded quite as highly as the original, but but does have a good reputation. I just never got around to it. So I'm planning to make this the next baseball book I read, at least after the one that we are currently reading, mm. Winning Fixes Everything by Evan Drellick about the Astros. Uh, we're hoping to talk to Evan on the podcast about that soon. But But after that, Whenever I have time for another baseball book, I think it will be The Hustler's Handbook. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm actually going to, because I have it on hand and because I have uh, sung the praises of Bill Beck, I'm just going to open to a random page and we will see 
what Bill Veck is uh, writing about on this page because uh, just almost every page of Veck is in rec in my memory was interesting. Okay, so here's a, a page from the Hustler's Handbook. This is chapter 10. And Bill Veck, it seems, is writing about psychology. He says, I've always had the feeling amounting to a certainty that we have not even begun to scratch the field of psychology. This blind faith in the scientific method did not come about through my occasional jousts with the practitioners in the field, I must admit. It goes back to my early impressionable days in Chicago when I was intimately involved in a pace-setting program set up by Mr. Wrigley, owner of the Cubs, and Dr. Griffith, head of the psychology department at the University of Illinois. The program set such a killing pace that nobody seems to have ever followed us. What we hoped to do was to combine psychological tests, physiological tests, reflex, sight anticipation, etc., and the usual baseball aptitude tests, running, hitting, fielding, and come out with a complete profile of each of our prospects. Our basic premise was that this complex of tests would enable us to eliminate the 95% who had no chance of going all the way to the majors and concentrate our full efforts upon those remaining 5% whose future was obviously bright. My first job was to get the local high school coaches to send us their best three or four kids and to supervise the building of the clubhouse in which we were going to install both our kids and our testing equipment. Just before the season ended, the psychologists picked their starting lineup based upon their tests and the scouts picked their team based upon their eyesight. I once asked Jack Doyle, whom I consider the greatest scout who ever lived, why he had signed Gabby Hartnett. Because he had a good Irish puss. Jack said. <laughs> oh boy. Even today, when most clubs have their scouting reports laid out so they can be fed into IBM machines, you will sometimes see the remark in amongst the assessment of a prospect's physical abilities has good face. It is, of course, more complicated than that. What Doyle really meant, whether he knew it or not, was that out of his years of experience, he could see that Hartnett in his actions, his bearing, and his performance looked like a ball player. Okay, I'll end with this. The anticlimax to this excursion into the brave new world was that the scouts team clobbered the psychologist team. Mm. About 10 of the players picked by the scouts eventually progressed up to the high minors. Of the players picked by the psychologists, the scoreboard read zero. (laughs) And yet I have always felt that it was a most fascinating and farsighted, if not necessarily far-reaching experiment. Psychological testing was in the fire and wheel stage in those days. It had barely crawled out of the cave. In my last year with the White Sox, I got together with a team of psychologists from Illinois Tech to fool around with the same type of problem because I wanted to find out just how much the testing methods had improved. Unfortunately, I became ill and the program had to be cut short. Mm. And he goes on to to talk about how you could use psychology to identify an Eddie Stanky, right? An effectively wild favorite Eddie Stanky, whom we've talked about as uh, someone who was always up for some gamesmanship and maybe got more out of himself than his uh, physical skills alone would have suggested and maybe that was because of his psychology so could Could you measure that yeah not only had eddie worked to develop every scrap of skill he possessed he had developed the best psychological gambits to enhance those skills the only thing that pleased him more than to be knocked down was to be knocked down twice because that meant he was starting off with a 2-0 count Hmm. interesting yeah well i could continue reading and i will because uh, i'm looking forward to reading the rest of this book but that's a good little snapshot that was kind of uh, bill veck books in microcosm i think yeah. it's entertaining it's engaging and yet he is also uh, progressive and thinking about things that teams are still thinking about today and maybe still do not quite have a full handle on psychology and psychological testing but they're certainly trying And I guess Bill Veck was one of the trailblazers in that respect. Yeah. 
All right, I can't resist quoting a couple more lines about Eddie Stanky here. His greatest asset, Vec and Lynn said, was his ability to work the pitcher for a base on balls, and he worked harder to get that base on balls than Babe Ruth ever worked to hit a home run. Stanky was one of the few batters I ever saw who tried to goad the pitchers into throwing at him. When the count ran to, say, three balls and one strike, he would spin the bat up under his arm like a captain of the cavalry as he glared out at the pitcher, the most insulting and contemptuous gesture I have ever seen on a ball field. Eddie was out to get the pitcher so mad that he couldn't see straight, let alone throw straight. When he did get himself one of those bases on balls, he would grasp his bat tenderly between his fingers and let it drop one-sixteenth of an inch from the catcher's toes, and sometimes an eighth of an inch closer. Only the instep of the catcher's shoe isn't protected, you must understand, and Eddie was careful to drop it right where it hurt, just to encourage the catcher to make a mental note to sit that wise punk down the next time he came to bat. Stanky would get the opposing pitcher in a mood where his only concern was not letting Eddie work him for a walk, which meant that Eddie would not only be drawing a record number of walks, he'd be getting a lot of excellent pitches to hit. Eddie worked so hard to encourage people to hate him that he could not seem to reverse his field when he became a manager. Alright, I'll leave it there, but you can hear more about Stanky on episode 1830 and when we did a whole stinky draft of players or people in baseball who have inspired rules changes. By the way, a small update. After we recorded with Grant, the Giants announced their non-roster invitees to spring training, and one of them, Ronald Guzman, he's listed as a two-way player, a first baseman slash left-handed pitcher. You may remember Guzman from the Rangers and the Yankees. Then again, you may not. He has a career negative .5 war. He hasn't pitched professionally, aside from a third of an inning at AAA last year, but he has been throwing at least this winter and supposedly is up to 95, so he's going to try to do the Christian Bethancourt or the Anthony Ghost, except he's not converting exclusively to pitching. So I don't think that makes up for missing out on Judge and Correa, but it could be a fun storyline to follow. I always root for two-way guys, even discount two-way guys. That'll do it for today. By the way, if you do want stats on past predictions, I will link to Chris Hanel's spreadsheet on the show page. On the whole, 53.8% or so of our guests have been over-optimistic. 39.6% have been pessimistic optimistic and 6.5 or 6 percent or so have nailed the win total exactly so 148 out of 275 have overshot the mark although the average difference between the predicted total and the actual total only about 2.2 i think this is using prorated normalized totals for 2020 the next two teams up will be the angels and red Sox if all goes well but that'll be at the end of the week so stay tuned and in the meantime you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going help us stay ad free and get themselves access to some perks michael peitzmeyer xander stroud ben slimmer brent r krebs and michael rower thanks to all of you patreon perks include access to the effectively wild discord group for patreon supporters coming up on 1000 members now and the activity will probably pick up as the season draws nearer so get on board you also get access to monthly bonus episodes and later in the year playoff live streams plus there are discounts on merch and ad free fangrass memberships and signed books and more if you are a patreon supporter you can message us through the patreon site if not, you can email us. Send us your questions and comments at podcast at fangrass.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with a non-preview episode next time. Talk to you then. As you drew close to me, you gently reached 
out and took my hand Said here we go Here we go Here we go.